For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hoden with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? With the COVID-19 pandemic canceling the Open Championship and delaying the other three majors, the U.S. Open will be held this week at Wingfoot Golf Club in Westchester County, just five miles north of New Rochelle, one of New York's first coronavirus hotspots. In addition to being delayed from the summer to the fall, the tournament's broadcaster will change from Fox to NBC. After televising the last five Opens, Fox ended its U.S. Golf Association deal with seven years remaining. Jim Jeanette, a resident of Westchester County, earned nine Emmy Awards in 41 years at ABC Sports. A native of Kansas City, Jeanette attended the University of Missouri, worked as an announcer and director at KMBC-TV, and then moved to New York for an entry-level job at ABC Sports. While his assignments included Monday Night Football, Summer and Winter Olympics, and a variety of events for Wide World of Sports, his concentration was on college football and golf, directing several major tournaments, including the 1984 U.S. Open at Wingfoot, which was won by Fuzzy Zeller in an 18-hole playoff with Greg Norman. During the pandemic, Jeanette has hosted Zoom get-togethers with ABC Sports alumni, spanning the globe for the constant variety of content and people associated with Wide World of Sports. The 1972 Munich Olympics were the topic of one chat, with former staffer Kurt Fuchs joining from Germany. Another alumnus, Russell Brooks, zoomed in from Nigeria, where he works for the State Department as Information Officer for the Bureau of African Affairs. Also attending have been Olympic champions and ABC analysts Donna Deverona and Bart Connor, as well as Terry Gannon, an NCAA basketball champ, former ABC announcer, and current NBC figure skating and Golf Channel host. Jim Jeanette, how are you and your family doing? Well, actually, we're doing pretty well. Uh, we haven't had any COVID-19 problems in our family, but uh, we're kind of spread out all over the country. And my younger daughter's out on the West Coast in California, so she's near the fires, but uh, not affected by them except for the smoke. So all in all, we're we're in good shape. The kids, the grandkids are going back to school, and that's been a challenge, but it's working out. That's great to hear. Thanks for so asking. In this COVID-19 world, uh, the U.S. Open was postponed from June until this weekend. And as someone who has worked on as many Opens and, and golf tournaments as you have, how far before an event would you begin site surveys and preparations? For a major event like that with 18-hole coverage, we'd probably make our first trip about between 9 and 11 months prior to the, the event. So it would usually... When, when, when I was directing the U.S. Open, we made two visits, one, say, in the fall and another one in the spring. And uh, the fall one was to introduce ourselves to the club because a lot of times the, the club had, had either not had a, a U.S. Open before or they, it had been so long that the membership uh, and, the, and the committees had turned over. So we had to introduce ourselves to all new people and kind of reassure them because these U.S. Open courses are, the membership is fairly... Uh, 
concerned. They're concerned about the footprint of television coming into their course. Well, the whole tournament for that matter, because uh, of all the parking and concession stands and TV camera towers and trucks and all that. So they have to do, we have to do a little handholding. So that's a lot of what the early trip had to do with. And then when we went back in the spring, uh, we, we staked out our towers. And so we knew exactly, they knew exactly where we were going to have our infrastructure. And, um, and that, that, that usually was enough. Sometimes the technicians went more times if there were power issues or, or uh, transmission issues and so on. But the production, which is what I was in charge of, was uh, two trips. With less than two months to prepare from the time the USGA deal switched hands from Fox to NBC, what did NBC need to do to get up to speed in these uh, this such a, a tor- short time frame? I think NBC will draw from their past experience with the U.S. Open, which is substantial, and I'm sure they are really tickled to be back in the in the USGA uh, televising business. Uh, I think they were quite upset when they lost the contract to Fox. Uh, what was that six years ago? Yeah. So they they I think they're going to be they're going to be fine. They have um, uh, they have never been to Wingfoot before that I know of to do a tournament. So that will be their challenge. And Wingfoot is especially sensitive about the things I was talking about before, like infrastructure and so on. However, they will have the giant advantage of not not having any spectators there. That's an advantage, at least from the standpoint of how much damage is done to the golf course um, with the with the crowds trampling around and golf carts running around. So I think the, the club will appreciate that. I think the whole the whole thing with NBC going back is that they they have a formula that they use to do their golf, and they can apply that formula to almost any golf course. A lot of it evolves around portable cameras, so it's a matter of just taking their formula which is a camera tower behind each green, and then these roving cameras to do the tee shots and, and uh, other shots that go, uh, especially the, the errant shots. And they can do that on the golf course. They, you know, they, just, they just put them where they think they need them. So it's not, I think it's different from when ABC was, when we were doing the, the tournaments, we, had, we didn't take a preconceived plan into the golf course. Uh, we, maybe 50% of our plan was, was cookie cutter, but the rest was, we tried to tailor our, our coverage and our look to that specific golf course, every golf course being different. You know, so, some have more lakes than others, some have more bunkers than others. So we, we always try to keep our open our minds open about how we would cover a golf course. And Wingfoot is, has some unique features. So our goal would be to, to try to include those unique features in our broadcast. So let's stick with Wingfoot, which was designed by A.W. Tillinghast, who designed other New York area golf courses, Baltus Rawl and Bethpage Black. ABC televised two U.S. Opens at Wingfoot. Hale Irwin won in 1974 and Zeller, as we mentioned earlier, in 84, as well as the 1980 U.S. Senior Open won by Roberto DiVincenzo. With its sixth U.S. Open this year, only Oakmont and Baltus Rawl have hosted more. So what's special about Wingfoot? Well, the Tillinghast uh, touch is is one thing that you mentioned, and it, and it, it makes uh, he he cr- he made a lot of elevated greens, and those are kind of a challenge for TV because you have to recover that height to get the camera high enough to see what's going on on the green, 
And Tillinghast didn't, he didn't even know about television, so there was no uh, accommodation for television. Courses that are designed today, sometimes they even call in the, the broadcast people to make suggestions about how can we make this look better on television. But some of the older courses, you know, we have to retrofit our, our operation into what already exists. I would say the key thing is the elevated greens. And that turns out to be an advantage too, uh, in some cases, because you, it's a unique feature that you can, you can highlight, which we did. We also did a US amateur there. Um, and in that one, we were, because the final of the US amateur is one match, two players. And so the cameras can just follow that match around the course. And it gives you a lot of time to show the golf course more than you have in these, in these, uh, multiplayer tournaments. You mentioned uh, earlier, you know, not having fans. Since play has resumed, that's been the case. And as a director, how does that change how you and your team do your job? And would you advocate for miking players and any additional enhancements? Well, the, the lack of a crowd on a major championship is going to be missed because the crowd, just the sound of the crowd, which baseball has managed to uh, infuse uh, artificially, but they won't do that on golf. They can't really, I don't think. Um, so the crowd will be missed. I've done tournaments with very little crowd, like some of the USGA, the USGA contract that includes the US Open, also for the broadcaster includes other events, like the uh, sometimes the boys and girls uh, junior championship, those, tournaments are played in front of parents <laughs> as the, that's the spectators. So, uh, you know, I've seen what it looks like. It can still be lively, even with a few people, but uh, no crowd at all. I'm sure there'll be some people around, but uh, there won't be the big cheers that go up when somebody makes a putt. And I think that everybody watching, I suspect at first will be holding their breath saying, you know, uh, where, <laughs> where's the reaction? So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what happens, but I would not, like doing it without a crowd there. I'll tell you one thing about Wingfoot. When, when I did my two US Opens at Wingfoot, I lived in Westchester County. And so I could just get up and drive to work 20 minutes to Wing, Wingfoot. But when you got to Wingfoot, it's all of these little two lane streets through residential areas. And the traffic was unbelievable. I mean, I saw, I saw a couple of players. I think Larry Nelson was one of them sitting in this bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, not moving, he actually grabbed his bag out of the trunk and, and walked in so he wouldn't miss his tea time. Wow. So uh, that won't be a problem this time. But um, that is certainly an issue with, with uh, a golf course that's built in a crowded residential area. I want to look back at more ABC moments on the golf course. Before we do, you mentioned NBC having a formula getting back into uh, broadcasting the Open. Fox really came out of nowhere and uh, in, to broadcast golf. I was wondering how do you think Fox's five years as the U.S. Open broadcaster will be remembered? Well, I think uh, people will remember that they used Greg Norman as one of their commentators, and I think that was that had its pluses and minuses. He was. Uh, you know, what you have to, what's not fun to deal with is a, is a giant ego of a broadcaster, if a broadcaster has one in the booth. Uh, and, and he was, he has, he had a, he brought in a big ego. Um, I think, I thought he was good, but not great. And he didn't last long. 
and I think they were probably in the end better without him. I think one of the things they really did uh, bring in was some new technology that, uh, that that now has been adopted more universally by the other networks. But that's Fox's style. Remember when they when they got the hockey contract, they had the they had the flashing puck and the, the puck track and all those things. And uh, some people like it, some don't. But I give them a lot of credit for for trying. And they also emphasized the sounds of the golf course. Uh, players talking and, and, and the sound of the ball being hit. Well, I mean, that's fairly obvious. But the other little subtle sounds, like when a, when a putter taps a ball, sometimes if you don't hear it, or sometimes if you do hear it, it's kind of exciting, and then the ball rattling into the hole. Fox is really into good sound. You see it on their football and on their other sports, baseball. And they, they, uh, I think they brought some of that technology to, to, to the game of golf, too. So I think the, they, they did fine. I think they just problem was they spent they paid too much money for the rights and then when when the USGA said we're moving it to the fall and Fox has a has a giant commitment to NFL football to Major League Baseball they can't do a tournament that's played on a Saturday and Sunday in the in the fall so I think they went at, went to NBC and said let's um, uh, can you take this from us for one year and NBC was, I think, showed so much enthusiasm for the idea. Fox asked, asked the next question, which was, would you consider taking it for the whole seven-year contract? And, right. and I think NBC was, was happy to do that, even though they – and NBC got it for a good price. They got it for less than they bid when Fox took it away from them. So I think it all worked out really well for NBC. Fox had to pay a penalty to get out of the contract, which I think kind of stings. But they were really in a box with the other – sports they have on the weekends in the fall. Well, let's go back. ABC carried the Open from 1966 through 1994. The 1977 U.S. Open at Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was the first golf tournament with live 18-hole coverage. What did you have to do to adjust to producing and directing a live 18-hole tournament, which is something we take for granted today? Well, that's true. Yeah, it's uh, the first thing is that technology made it possible because the prior to that, a few years prior to that, the camera cables could only run out to a, to a length. And I think the length was around 2,500 feet. That's not very far when you're on a golf course. So we had to have more trucks and, and, uh, and the cable was this big fat uh, cable, maybe an inch and a half in diameter. So with the advent of digital broad, uh, digital cameras, um, the cables were smaller. You could run them for miles. You could put repeaters in, this, in the cable so they could run another mile. So it made it possible to do also portable cameras added to the possibilities. The year before uh, 77, I think the U.S. Open was at Pebble Beach, 76. Mm -hmm. And we actually did 18-hole coverage there. It, didn't, it wasn't on the air because we only had uh, – two and three hour broadcast windows and yeah. to do 18 hole coverage with the, the leaders playing all 18 holes you need four and a half hours let's say so we televised we recorded a lot of the action and it was sort of an experiment to see how it would work out to do 18 hole coverage and everybody was was convinced after that that it would be certainly a possibility and a good thing it was my boss was rune arledge his dream was always to do 18-hole coverage. He said, why do we come on? We don't come on in the third inning of a baseball game. Why do we come on when the players are at the, at the eighth hole or making the turn? So 
along came 1977. We did our survey out there at Southern Hills. I told you before, nine months ahead of time. And the, the, it seemed to lay out pretty well. We were, go, we were using four television mobile units to, to do it. Or actually, I'm sorry, three. And that would cover the whole 18-hole course. Southern Hills is not easy. There's a lot of trees and uh, hills, Southern Hills. Mm-hmm. So we, we were all set to do it. And in the spring, or actually early summer, our technicians union went out on strike. We thought, well, they'll come back by the fall because that's when everybody gets busy. Uh, I mean, they'll come back, you know, when, when we get to this busy time of the U.S. Open, we also had the, uh, we had the Indianapolis 500. We figured they'll come back for that. They didn't. So we added equipment and did the 18-hole coverage. The, the, the uh, broadcast operations department of ABC was saying, do not do this without the, tech, the union technicians because it'll be a disaster. We, can't, we aren't going to be able to come up with enough management people to man the cameras and all who have enough skill. But Rune Arledge said, we're, we're, we promoted it, we've advertised it, we're going ahead with it, and we did. And our technical director, who was one of the technicians on strike, told me that he sat in his apartment in New Jersey and watched it, and he had, he had all of his paperwork spread out on the coffee table, and he was watching because we were moving a lot of cameras around the, the, the golf course. And he was watching and he was saying, well, they made that one. It killed him not to be there for that. Uh, but we got through it. And uh, uh, mainly, I think the trick was adding, uh, adding the, the uh, ca- we added additional cameras. We added a fourth mobile unit and it made it all work out. But mm-hmm. not, the best, not the best way to go into your first year of 18-hole coverage. Ah, that's a great story. So in addition to that live 18-hole tournament, what other enhancements did ABC and the golf crew pioneer? When you talk about it, pioneering enhancements, everybody wants to take credit for everything. You, you, you're, you know, the oldest example is the instant replay. And mm-hmm. there are several people in the business who now are maybe many are passed away, but who took credit for that. But I would say we pioneered, number one, the handheld camera in the fairway. And I don't think we pioneered it because the BBC was using it on the British Open Championship. But we figured out how to do it. One of the differences is the BBC had access to better frequency channels for their cameras when they're broadcasting wirelessly. A lot of the channels, those channels in this country are used by the military. So we have to use the what's set aside for broadcast and there wasn't a big demand for sort of long distance wireless cameras. So we had to sort of break through and figure out how to do that with, with uh, station wagons <laughs> driving up the, through the trees and the, the fairway close enough to get the signal and rebroadcast it. Anyway, things like that. We, we, we actually, for a long time, used a giant balloon that went up above. We put it up above the trucks. It, it was up about 400 feet in the air. And you could see it from anywhere on the golf course. So that allowed us, once we got the, the stronger transmitters, that allowed us a single receive site for all these cameras. So, so that was a pioneering effort. We also, the, the sound in the fairways had previously been all been done by a guy with a high powered shotgun microphone standing by the gallery ropes. And he might be 70 yards away from the player, uh, closer sometimes, but yeah. the sound was inadequate. So we really worked hard to get First of all, permission from the USGA and other agencies to get our to to allow the the uh, microphone operator to go out into the fairway. And now we started hearing 
conversations between players and caddies. Uh, not always, because if the wind blew, sometimes the mic didn't work as well, or if the operator wasn't pointing it just perfectly, very directional, or if the player was kind of mumbling or whispering, when you, <laughs> which they did a lot when they saw, especially when they saw the microphone yeah. come over. But other players, uh, like Phil Mickelson's a good example. He speaks up and he talks to his caddy uh, in, a, in a fairly loud voice and back and forth. We got some great stuff over the years from him. So that was another tech, uh, an improvement. And the final one I'll mention is the, the um, well, I, I should say two more. <laughs> one is when we, uh, golf is, the problem of televising golf is it's things are happening in so many different places at the same time. So we learned how, or well, we didn't learn, but we, the technology became possible to record one shot while another was happening so that the viewer can see both. Or things, things important things might happen while we're having a commercial. And then we could, the commercial would end and we would be able to play the tape. This is child's play now. But when we started doing it, it was, it was very difficult because the tape had to be recorded and then rewound which took time and then you have to find the right spot and then play it. So we pioneered a technique of doing that by actually having a separate uh, director just doing the recording of the shot so we didn't miss anything. And then adding sound to that was very difficult because now the sound, sound man has to be producing a live broadcast as well as getting sound into these tape machines. So we figured out a way to do that. So that was a breakthrough. And the final one, <laughs> I promise, is the scoreboards. Uh, we had the best scoreboards and we did it because if computers, maybe this was in the 80s, late 80s, computers were new uh, things for television. Everybody was using video graphics at that point, replacing the old manual graphics where we actually, if you can believe this, put a sandwich board up with, with white letters on black background and a camera shot and it was superimposed, and there it said Jack Nicholas minus three. Although that was obviously pretty awkward, and 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 not uh, that's not going to go very far. But once the computer graphic machines came through, we worked with a company called Dubner in New Jersey, and they actually not not only took a computer that could produce uh, video graphics, but they put a, a program in the computer that allowed us to put scores in so they could be sorted. And believe it or not, I mean, this sounds like child's play, but it was a breakthrough at the time. So now we can put up a leaderboard. We could show leaderboards, say 10 players at a time and go through the entire field. That had never been done before. The most you could hope for was two pages and maybe that would be 18 players. And when a, when a score changed, it changed everywhere in the computer system. So scores of other players, the leaderboard, the little graphic that goes in the bottom of the screen that says the player score when he's hitting, as well as we could do, uh, let's say, foreign players a leaderboard. So the computer could sort all these scores out. Big breakthrough. It sounds like, again, people who use computers today, that sounds like, well, what's, what's the big deal? But it was huge in those days. Yeah, especially when you compare it with, like you say, the sandwich boards. <laughs> yeah. So over ABC's time with the Open, it aired eight 18-hole U.S. Open playoffs before the USGA did away with the full-round playoff. And it uh, bookended the lifespan of the Open on ABC with the first Open in 1966, seeing Billy Casper defeat Arnold Palmer in a playoff. And in the network's last Open in 1994, 
Ernie Els won on a second sudden death hole over Lauren Roberts and right. Colin Montgomery. How do you direct a playoff when it's just two or three players? And you mentioned earlier that, you know, that, that's kind of what the boys and girls and the U.S. amateur is, I guess. It's just one or two. So maybe it's Correct. a similar philosophy. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it, it's, it's, it's easier, but it's harder. So first of all, for, for the producer of the broadcast, he has to think about what are we going to, what will we do when the players are just walking up the fairway? So there's a lot of production elements that need to be created. For the director, the, the problem is a lot of the members of the technical crew have other jobs to go to. They haven't been booked through Monday uh, with, a, with the assumption that there might be a playoff. So we wrote, you know, the, the company rolled the dice, ABC rolled the dice and said, well, let's assume there's no playoff and we'll book these guys through Sunday. A skeleton crew will stay on Monday and knock down uh, the equipment. Well, now you have a playoff and you're going to be on the air for four hours. Uh, you know, and now you've got a skeleton crew. So now we have to beg some of the key cameramen to stay and so on. And so you, you actually go on the air. You don't need as many people because you're not covering all 18 holes at the same time. You need maybe half the size crew, but you need your key people. And they, a lot of the you know, good cameramen and so on have been booked on other, other events. So we had, a, we had a sort of an unwritten pact with our regulars that they had to kind of think about Mondays on these USGA events. But it was not an easy thing to pull off. And I, w- I was thinking about, we also did the Women's Open with the USGA, and that was the same thing, an 18-hole playoff on Monday if there was a tie. And one, one year, the Women's Open was in, in Connecticut. And we had, we had um, a big rainstorm on Saturday, and it washed out the round. The weather forecast was bad for Sunday as well, so they didn't think they could combine the third and fourth rounds on Monday. So they had, a, had the third round on Sunday, and then they planned the fourth round for Monday. And sure enough, there was a tie. So now you've got the playoff on Tuesday. Now mm-hmm. we really don't have anybody. <laughs> Everybody's gone. We actually, believe it or not, had the Good Morning America camera crew come out to Connecticut after the show, their show was off the air at nine o'clock. We worked with the USGA about the starting time so that we said, we, and these cameramen, they were studio cameramen. They hadn't done any golf before. And I had a one hour rehearsal to get them up. One hour rehearsal, by the way, with nobody hitting any golf balls. To get them up to speed, that was not pretty. Wow! But that's, we, that's... you know, and like like all these things, we got through it. Yeah. But there was uh, there was one other one one other funny uh, eighteen hole or uh, uh, eighteen hole playoff on Monday story. The PGA Championship also up until I I think it was in the eighties uh, switched to the aggregate three hole playoff, uh, which was not sudden death, but it wasn't stay till Monday and have 18 holes. So right. if there was a tie at the end of regulation play, they went back to an aggregate three-hole playoff with whoever was tied. And we were in Pebble Beach doing the PGA Championship. And Gene Littler was one of the players who was tied. And he had actually had a big lead and had kind of put a little away and eventually was tied. I don't remember who the other player was, but when Gene Littler, who was just – devastated because he had, he had not played well and he had lost his lead and now he was in a tie. He staggered off the 18th green and he saw one of the PGA Tour officials and he said, I, I really need a drink because, you know, the play, I, gotta, I, I just can't even uh, 
hardly walk up to the hotel. Right. And uh, the PGA Tour official said, uh, oh no, we're playing an aggregate hole. You have to go to the first hole, first tee now and play a playoff. <laughs> and he almost passed out. But you know, you, you think he would have known. I mean, there was so much publicity about this was the first year they'd ever done it. You would think he would have read somewhere or somebody would yeah. have mentioned to him or his caddy would have known. <laughs> but for him to get to that point, when I heard that story, I thought, how can that happen? We, we go to the Olympics and you joined ABC in 1967 and were with the network for nine of its 10 Olympics, missing only the 1964 Innsbruck Winter Games. You directed alpine skiing for the last three ABC Winter Olympics at Lake Placid, Sarajevo and Calgary. So you saw Phil Mayer win a silver in the slalom in 1980 and he and his brother Steve took gold and silver in slalom in 1984 as Bill Johnson became the first American to win the downhill gold medal. In 1988, you covered the rise of Italian Alberto Tomba. What are your top memories from your time on the slopes, and what other jobs did you have over those nine Olympics? In the first Olympics, I mean, I, I did alpine skiing in, in the Grenoble Olympics. That was my first Olympic experience, and I had only been with ABC for um, less than a year at that point. Uh, but and I, and I, had, I grew up in the Midwest. I never never skied. I water skied, but I never, I didn't know anything about the sport, but I fell in love with it in that first Grenoble experience. It's so challenging for television because of the, the conditions of the venue, first of all. And, and the second thing that really makes it challenging is like golf, more than one thing is happening, especially on the downhill. So they, they leave the start gate at one minute intervals and the, the skier may be two thirds of the way down the course when the next skier starts. And they stack the field so that the, the best skiers are in the first 15. So it's not like on golf, you can, you know, you can start off slow and do the early rounds. And then by the time the, the final round uh, comes along, your, your whole process is really honed to a fine tune. But in skiing, you've got to be ready for that first skier out of the blocks, maybe the guy who wins it. And, uh, and the next 14 have an equal chance. So you have to be recording one skier on, on the course while the other is finishing, and that gets complicated. And the logistics of that just fascinated me. So I wanted to be involved. But uh, the next Olympics, uh, well, the next was the Summer Olympics in Mexico, and I did rowing, and <laughs> I was the rookie, so I did rowing, <laughs> but then I did gymnastics, which was also very uh, challenging because of more than one thing happening at a time. Uh, but I was a production assistant then, so I was really learning. And I did some basketball there too. So then, then uh, along comes uh, Innsbruck, Munich, and uh, Montreal. I was in the control studio at that point, working with Bruno Arledge and Chuck Howard on putting the whole program on the air. And I was an associate director. And it was that was to be in the sort of the center where the, the, the heartbeat of the operation is, was really educational and interesting. Uh, and it was a scramble. Part of that was being in the Munich control room when the uh, terrorist event happened, uh, which brought the Olympics to a, to a halt. And there are, I have some very vivid memories of that. But if I had been out doing alpine skiing, for example, I would have been totally uninvolved in that, in that part of it. So th that, was my, that was my early uh, Olympics. Then Lake Placid, I thought I would be in the control room again because that was kind of my niche that I built for myself. 
but by that time I had become a director, full-time director. And uh, the, the company decided that I would direct Alpine skiing. We had, we had more than one director on the Alpine skiing. I directed the world feed, which is the host, the host feed that goes to ABC takes its coverage from that feed, but that also goes to the other countries of the world. So there's a challenge there to be, again, to be ready with that first skier and do it right for the, for the country. So it can't be like a lot of our Olympic coverage is kind of Americanized for consumption in this country, but what I was doing had to be an even-handed approach. And I, I had never directed skiing at that point, uh, up until that point. And I didn't do the survey. I sort of got thrown into it at the end, at the, I mean, just before it started. So it was a big challenge for me. And the, the producer director of Alpine skiing for the Austrian broadcasting company was on site to do to m- manage his feed to back to Austria. And he came in the truck and I talked to him and asked him for advice about certain things. And he, once we got through the downhill, he was just literally taking our feed and that's all. He came and sat with me in the truck and it was really fun to have him in there. He was very quiet. He only, only talked when I asked him uh, questions and uh, he, he spoke very slowly and with a thick German accent. So it, it really didn't help all that much, but, but it was great to have him there and he, was, he would point to the screen and, and help me. So that was fun. And then I've d- done uh, alpine skiing at all the remaining Olympics as well as the world championships. By the time you joined ABC, Wide World of Sports had been on the air for six years. Had it become the iconic show that we remember, or did Vinko Bogotaj's 1970 ski jumping crash or another moment solidify it in television history? Gosh, I, I don't know. I think when, when anybody mentioned ABC's Wide World of Sports at that time, everybody knew what it was. Everybody planned their Saturdays around getting home by 5 o'clock so they could watch it. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was originally put on the air as a summer replacement show on ABC. And it was only supposed to run, I don't know, 13 weeks or 26 weeks or something. And it was such a hit that it, that it uh, caught on right away. So I think, I think it caught on early. I don't think any one event actually made it uh, pop into uh, some uh, higher stratos- stratosphere. The Bogot- Vinko Bogotai ski jumping crash was iconic, and that became synonymous with the uh, with the wide world uh, opening anyway. I remember when I started working there in 1967, uh, I had so, so much to learn and I was, I was watching the, you know, the, some of these segments uh, get edited, uh, auto racing, firemen's uh, competitions where who could run up the fire ladder the fastest you know, and so on. And I was so amazed by how all this was done. I mean, I had, I had directed some television before that, as you mentioned, back in Kansas City, but nothing like this, you know, nothing, not, not any sports and not anything like this. And I was looking back over that six year history that you mentioned of wide world of sports. And I was thinking, boy, oh boy, I just missed it. I wish I could have been here six years ago. Of course, I would have still been in high school, but, but you know what I mean? You, yeah. you look at this thing that's going on and you say, wow, this is great. But I wish I'd been in earlier when the glory days were happening. Little did I know that ahead of us was, the Olympics, Monday Night Football, and all the other things uh, that, that came about, 18-hole coverage of golf, and on and on. So it's, the perspective is kind of interesting. And I think, I wonder if people joining the business now 
have that same thought. You know, oh my God, you know, I just missed everything. You know, all the, all the great things have already happened and I'm getting in on the tail end of it. And yet who knows what the future holds. You, you talk about that perspective and setting the stage. You, you mentioned earlier, everybody five o'clock on Saturday afternoons parked in front of their TV watching ABC do up close and personal events across the earth in ways never before seen. The network lived up to the words of Stanley Ralph Ross as scored by Charles Fox and narrated by Jim McKay, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat the human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports. What was the most remote location and most obscure event you covered, and, and what were some of your favorite memories? We always gave Jim McKay credit for writing that. Ah, <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he never corrected us. Uh-huh. But, uh, no, that was a pretty iconic uh, phrase to begin the program. Wow, most remote location, most obscure event. I, 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 one pops into my mind right away, and that is the Highland Games in Scotland. Sports Illustrated had written a story about the Highland Games as a sporting event in, in Scotland. And our, our, man, our uh, programming people thought, this is a, something that we should be putting on Wide World of Sports. You know, what sports? We covered everything. Well, we haven't covered this. So, so a crew, a crew, our crew, and actually Jackie Stewart, the race car driver uh-huh. of great fame, was, our, was going to be our announcer because he's Scottish. Right. Then we went over to Braemar, Scotland, which is in mm-hmm. kind of the foothills of the Highlands, and that was going to be the next big Highlands game. Now, what we discovered when we started sort of planning out our, what our coverage of the event would be is it's really not a sporting event. It's more of a family gathering. And yes, there are sporting things that go on. Like any, if you had a big family and a big picnic, you'd have a tug of war. You might have uh, who can throw the rock farthest into the water kind of contest. And they had more formalized, but they had uh, events like that. But most of it was a picnic with food and all. Luckily, the queen's mother was coming. So that gave it a whole lot of prestige. Uh And... When we got there, they said, well, actually, we went over for a trip to survey it. And they said, now, everybody who's on the field has to wear Scottish dress, Scottish clothes. So we had to rent clothes. And I, was, I wore a, a kilt. And I had, a, I had the Scottish socks that come up halfway up your calf. And I had a knife in my socks because that's, that's where they kept their secret weapon. I had a little purse on my belt. So I was fully in the in the Scottish dress, although I couldn't. The socks that came with my redded clothes weren't big enough because I'm I'm I have size 14 feet. The uh, porter at the hotel where we were staying was also my size, so he he loaned me a pair of socks to wear to wear the thing. So here we are, you know, and it, of course it rained, and here we are in our Scottish dress. It was really, first of all, remote, and secondly, obscure because. <laughs> We couldn't really make, it wasn't really a sporting event. So we came back, we edited the program, and we had a 20-minute uh, program to, to air on Wide World of Sports. So the, the executive producer of the program uh, viewed our tape, or our film, we did it on film, mm. and said, uh, I don't get it. <laughs> Where's the sporting <laughs> event? He said, cut it down to 10 minutes. Oh, so boy. we cut it down to 10 minutes. He saw it again, and he said, hmm, can you just give me a couple of highlights that run about two minutes? We cut it wow. down to two minutes with a little, couple of little things, and it never was on the air. Oh, my. So two trips to Scotland, 
renting all those clothes, shooting all that film, editing it three times, never made air. So <laughs> I wouldn't wow. say that's one of my favorite memories, but uh, yeah. it was certainly the most unique. And, and that's what I really enjoyed with um, the ABC Sports alumni group is telling stories like that with people mm -hmm. that you've kept tabs on former employees. How many alumni do you count in the group and how did you decide to start doing Zoom get togethers during the pandemic? We have about um, 430, I think, or 440 people that we communicate with in our, in our alumni group. And we, we thought that was a, way too many to have on a Zoom. Not that everybody would, would come on, but we didn't know how many. What if we invite 400 people and 300 show up? So we thought, so we, we formed a little committee and whittled it down to about um, 150 people. <laughs> this is as low as we could go and sent them all invitations. And really no more than 45 have shown up on any one of those occasions. The way it started was Jeff Mason, who was longtime ABC and NBC uh, sports uh, producer. Jeff said, you know, we could do this for, for our, he said, everybody's sitting at home anyway. Why don't we do this? So we sent out invitations and the first one was, was very successful. And you know how, when, if you do a zoom, you have, you can have a screen of like nine or more pictures. So I, I put that on the, ABC, I put that in the next invitation and a couple of people saw that and thought, Oh, this looks great. And those couple of people were Al Michaels and Bob Iger. So we had them as guests on our, or not guests, but as participants on our second zoom. Now we knew we had, you know, hit on something that would might be a little bit useful in, in this yeah. time. Yeah. It's been great. And you've been on it. Yeah. No, I really appreciate it. And uh, just sit back and, and listening to the stories. And uh, what's been the biggest takeaway from the chats with your fellow alumni? I think probably that second week when we had uh, Bob Iger and, and, and they both stayed uh, at Al Michaels, they both stayed through the whole thing. It was, it was an hour. I thought, well, they're, you know, they'll get bored. My Bob Iger was just at the point where he was going back into run Disney when they sort of were, you know, floundering because everything was fine. They got a new CEO to come in and start uh, start taking over. And then COVID hit and Disney's uh, business needed help. So Bob Iger stepped back in. He was right in the middle of all that. And yet he found an hour out of his busy day uh, to to join us on the, on the Zoom. So, I mean, I would say that was that was pretty good. Then then we we the last couple that we've done, we've tried to have a format where we have a theme and we would have a guest. And uh, that's worked out pretty well, too. We had Terry Gannon was our first guest. And he has, you know, a lot of history in both as a, as a college basketball player at North Carolina State and as a commentator on many sports on ESPN and ABC. And then we had uh, Bart Cotter the next week. Um, and I think that's the one you attended. That's right. And he was a big hit because he has a lot of, a lot of stuff going on and a lot of interesting things to say and who gets a chance to talk to Bart Connor or Terry Gannon for that matter. So it was, it was really good for us. Now we sort of, everybody's going back to work now, everybody's getting busy again. So it's been sort of uh, hard to get, get it going again. And I don't know, maybe we've seen the last one, but, but it was certainly a great thing for that COVID experience period. The Bob Iger, reading his Ride of a Lifetime book, learning more about his experience with ABC, mm -hmm. you know, one of the big moments he said was 
uh, a uh, table tennis tournament in North Korea the first time uh, any outside television group went in to televise something. Are there any stories you have about Bob Iger who, you know, obviously became, like you say, the CEO of Disney of your time working with him? Well, he, he started out as a, not sure what the title of his first job was, but he was scheduling the associate directors. And at that time I was an associate director. So Mm -hmm. uh, when I, you know, generally knew my assignments and what I would be doing in any given month, but, there would be a lot of little things that would need to get done. Like somebody would have to build the wide world of sports billboards that begin the, that begin the program. And uh, that, that was, and then editing promos was also kind of being sent to Siberia for, for your, for your assignment. But whenever the phone rang and it was Bob Iger, I could always feel it in the pit of my stomach. Here comes bad news. But other than that, I mean, Bob, Bob has, he did a great, he did a lot of good things for ABC Sports. And I mean, he's, he's really, really good at what he does. And now, I mean, there's no question that he's made Disney into something just amazing. So I have my, I have great respect for him and admiration and thanks. You mentioned he and Al Michaels coming on, and I think it really speaks to the alumni of ABC Sports and looking across the television landscape and seeing former employees at CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, Turner, outside of sports, including Bob Iger. Why did the division breed such success through the years? Well, well, I think it was because, for one thing, we were we were first at a lot of things. When when ABC Sports was formed, it actually began as an independent sports production company, and a man named Ed Sherrick started it, and he his idea was, we'll produce programs for television companies, stations, networks, whatever, whoever wants it. And, um, and then that'll be, that'll be the business we do. We'll get the rights to these events and then we'll sell to the, to the networks. Well, CBS and NBC both had kind of a, a already established sports. They didn't have sports departments. Their sports, their NFL games and their golf and so on was done through the news department, but it was all already in place. So Sports Programs Incorporated, Ed Sherrick's company, all of their product was going to ABC. So eventually they came to the conclusion that they should become maybe a a division or ABC should buy them and they should be part of ABC. So that happened. And they they still were Sports Programs Incorporated. And that was just at the time I started working there. I could see when I started, the stationery said, still said Sports Program Incorporated, but we had become ABC Sports, Inc. So it was a separate company, kind of, but we were ABC Sports, Inc. So that, that was um, uh, the, sort of the beginning of ABC Sports. But because it was a separate department of the company, that allowed, and then they hired Rune Arledge to run it at that point, that allowed Rune Arledge to do more things. Wide World of Sports is a good example. College football. Uh, he convinced the network we needed to be aggressive. Once it started, you, the network didn't need to be convinced because they saw that their, their entertainment programming was not competing well with the other networks for ratings. And yet the sports was. So let's put a little more money of our money in sports. Rune uh, knew exactly what to do. He had great vision. He was brilliant at what he did in, in terms of what 
will people want to see? How can we present something in a different way? How can we personalize? He, he thought stories about the athletes would be a great way to get people interested. Uh, he's, you know, make it people magazine of, of sports without sacrificing the sports coverage. This is why I think ABC Sports got off to a good start. They were positioned differently than the other networks. And Rune was a great uh, leader. And we had some great producers like Chuck Howard, who was not only a great producer, but he was a great teacher. I learned so much from him about how to, how, how to do things, how to tell stories about uh, sporting events on television. And we had, we had some other great people like Doug Wilson, who was very good at, again, telling stories. And how, how can you take a sporting event and make it a story that people will be interested in? Those people and, and, and some young people that I worked with, like Don Olmeyer went on to run NBC Sports, Dick Ebersol, who was uh, Rune's assistant for a few years, went on to run NBC Sports. And so there's like a breeding ground of future executives for other network sports departments. And I think that's why the footprint of ABC Sports is so big in the industry. Uh, I think you've, you've answered this in people and production, but I guess if you had to condense it down, and I guess you already just did, but is there anything else you would add to what the legacy of Wide World of Sports is in a world now where sports programming is the most coveted and the highest rated that's out there? I think ABC Sports, uh, Wide World of Sports was not going to last forever. I mean, nothing does. But I think the... The, the uh, fascination early on was being able to take a TV camera to Russia and see figure skating or go to East Germany and see weightlifting. These things had never been done before. And, and the, the fascination of the geography, geographical part of it, you know, here we are in Hungary. It was fascinating. And now it's child's play. You know, we go around the world, everybody flies everywhere. Uh, television broadcasts can originate from any, literally anywhere, underwater, anywhere. So the fasc that fascination is, no, is not there anymore. And these obscure sports are not so obscure anymore. Uh, gymnastics was an obscure sport when ABC's Wide World of Sports started covering it. Not anymore. You know, it's common. It's, a, it's, it's one that, that people, people tune in specifically to watch. So I would say that that probably... Uh, was the run of ABC Sports. And also, when, when ESPN came on, now you've got Wide World of Sports 24 hours a day. So there was really no place for Wide World of Sports anymore. I think, I think ESPN was a, was a game changer as far as that kind of programming, having a place. But it certainly maintains a legacy. And ABC tried to, even with ESPN's presence, ABC tried to keep Wide World of Sports as a thing for maybe a few years after it's, it should have been put to bed. Uh, and I, I think everybody appreciated that because there was a legacy and that was our you know, title. Uh, but it was eventually going to end and, uh, and, and it had a great run. I mean, think about the 26 week replacement series that became you know, years and years and years of, of airing. So God bless it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well said. So uh, do you have any uh, other upcoming events or projects that we should uh, keep an eye out for? Well, no, I, I'm, I'm completely retired now. Mm -hmm. So I, I haven't done any, I haven't done any work in probably 
uh, maybe six years, five mm. years. Um, the the last the last events were once once I left AB. Well, ABC Sports sort of dissolved into ESPN, as you know. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Disney when Disney bought ABC, the way the corporate people out in um, Burbank with Disney looked at it was, why do we have two sports departments? We have ABC Sports and we have ESPN. And at that time, ESPN was on a skyrocket course. And Sports Center was just, everybody watched Sports Center. They did some uh, focus groups and they said, what, uh, do you watch Wide World of Sports? And they got from especially younger people, what, what is that? Well, do you watch Sports Center? Oh yeah, I watch Sports Center, you know, three times a day. So it told Disney that maybe Wide World of Sports, ABC Sports for that matter, had run its course. And also being a, an aging big company, uh, it was, everything was done cheaper at ESPN. So that caught the eye of all the green eye shades out in Burbank. And the ABC Sports future was the, you know, the handwriting was on the wall. So with the end of ABC Sports, that was the end of me. Although I did do a little work for ESPN and, uh, and other companies. But, um, you know, finally it came time to retire. So I think it was 2014, I did my last event, which was a college golf tournament <laughs> and, uh, in Florida, and, uh, and that was it. So, no, I'm not, uh, not, I have no upcoming projects except to watch my grandkids grow up. If we were to draw you out of retirement, are there any items that you haven't, having spanned the globe as you did for so many events, but is there something on your broadcasting bucket list that would bring you back? Well, in a fantasy world, uh, I would, I never directed baseball and baseball was my favorite sport as a kid growing up. I never had a chance to, actually I did have an opportunity once, but I couldn't do it. Uh, it was a, uh, <clears throat> a game on Fox. Was that, I think it was a, I think it might have been a college game on Fox, uh -huh. and they, the director got sick, and I was in the city where the game was taking place to do a professional volleyball tournament the next day. Mm -hmm. So they said, oh, the game, the college game is tonight. Can you come and do it?" And I couldn't because I had to go to uh, to an event with the volleyball. So um, that would be that would be on my bucket list, but I mean that's never going to happen. But that was the one thing I would like to have done because I, I love the sport. Just love the sport. I would have thought the Masters. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, the Masters was, uh, I have a love affair with the Masters, but I know that the tel people who televise it have, have their hands tied by the, by the organizers. Yeah. And you've probably read the stories about how specific and demanding, right. even to this day, that they are. And, right. and the CBS, they, they love CBS. CBS has, I think, been the only network that's done the Masters. And um, that's how they want it. They don't want to try anything new. So I think it would be, that would not be something that I would get any thrill out of. But also, I would probably hate it <laughs> because, of, because of the handcuffs and the restrictions. This has been a, a pleasure, Jim Jeanette. Thank you so much for your time and for being the caretaker of the ABC Sports Alumni Group. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure for me talking to you today, too. Well, I'll look forward to the next Zoom. And until then, thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes and find us wherever you get podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M, is in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.